He's a senior, senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Centre in Washington, studies and provides commentary on American politics. His work focuses on how to address, consistent with conservative principles, the electoral challenges facing modern American conservatism. And I think that what's facing conservatism, or however defined, is facing a lot of the Western world at the moment, um, as we see in what's happening in Europe and perhaps here and elsewhere. He's uh, publishing a book on Ronald Reagan next year, which uh, should be fascinating. He's worked in senior executive positions at many centre-right think tanks. He, uh, most of them, well, all of them really, I know. He most, he's most recently served from 2006 to 2013 as Vice President and Director of the National Research Initiative at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington. He previously, previously worked as Vice President of Programs at the Manhattan Institute, which is not surprisingly is in New York, and President of the Commonwealth Foundation. His work has been featured in many prominent publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, National Review, and the Weekly Standard. His pre-election predictions of the 2008, 2010, 2012, and 2014 elections have been particularly praised for their remarkable accuracy. So I guess we're gonna say, well, what's gonna happen now? Please welcome Henry Olson. Thank you for that warm introduction. Uh, you should know that uh, Greg and CAS have an international reputation for intellectual excellence, intellectual integrity, and influence that uh, those of us in the United States who follow these things uh, respect CIS uh, as greatly as we respect any place in the world. And I think the fact that you've been able to make this a go, not only a go, but a massively successful organization in your 40 years gives uh, all of us who are friends of liberty and in America, the word conservative basically means a classical liberal or someone who is, follows the ideas of um, the Enlightenment with respect to free minds, free markets, and free action. Uh, great uh, comfort to know that we have a friend and an ally here in uh, the Commonwealth of Australia. As you heard that uh, PJ Rourke basically has asked, have we all gone mad? And my role is to play the role of the doctor, who will tell you the etiology of the madness and perhaps give you a, uh, a hope that the madness can be cured, and not only cured in a way to save a comatose patient, but to make the opportunities for freedom uh, expand over the next 20 years rather than contract. But we start uh, with uh, going back into the past. And what I'd like to do is start with your history, which is to say Sir Robert Menzies, uh, who in 1942 gave a speech that is perhaps his most famous speech uh, during his wilderness years, uh, the one entitled The Forgotten People. He identified what we have seen over the ensuing seven decades is the key group in the electorate that a democratically successful, classically liberal influenced politics has to attract. If it succeeds to attract it, it can blunt the drive of statism in the left. If it fails to attract it, then the prospects for freedom dim. The group, as he described it in Australia at the time, were people like yourself, people of uh, not uh, extreme wealth, but people of in independent means, people of integrity, people of enterprise, people who practice, as he said, the virtues of thrift and ambition, people who uh, had an attraction to high culture, people who had all of the virtues on which a free society, a non-slavish society, rests. 
what he identified was that in the debates of that time, this group of people had not been effectively politically mobilized. They needed to be brought into the conversation, and consequently, that was his goal, both in the creation of the Liberal Party and in the creation of the more permanent uh, alliance with the country and now national parties, which is to say, the creation of the coalition. Uh, you know, as a result, the success that, uh, starting with 1949, uh, that coalition held back the left for 23 years. That coalition, while imperfect in many ways, uh, also dealt with the realities on the ground, the realities of public opinion, and maneuvered them in a way so that I think it can really be said that the free and prosperous Australia that I'm visiting for the first time was founded in thought in May of 1942 by Sir Robert Menzies. 22 years later, in another country, in another era, another man facing similar threats to freedom gave a talk and wrote a speech. And that man identified that freedom, which was under threat abroad and at home in his country, would be rescued if the people who love liberty could identify on the key constituency in that person's party, country. He identified that constituent as the simple soul who goes to work, bucks for a raise, uh, pays his mortgage, sends his kids to school, buys insurance, and knows there's no such thing as a free lunch. That man was Ronald Reagan, and he labeled this person the forgotten American. Once again, we identify that the people of average means, the people who are neither high enough uh, to be, uh, exert their power and low enough to demand collective action, what was called by Robert, uh, Sir Robert uh, the unskilled masses, who at that time were represented in massive industrial labor unions. And to this country, more than my country, continued to be represented by massive industrial labor unions. That the person in the middle, the person who is often overlooked by the elites who seek to mobilize and run their countries, is the person who, in fact, holds the key to a stable, free, democratic, polity that is open to classically liberal ideas, even if they are imperfectly instituted in the particular moment of time. I think the victory that that political coalition and a similar one that was built in England at the time under the leadership of Margaret Thatcher can truly be said to have contributed to the def intellectual defeat of a form of democratic socialism that was completely acceptable in the time of Sir Robert Menzies. If the Labor Party platform of 1949 envisioned a degree of government direction and ownership and guidance of society that frankly would be unthinkable in your country today, we had similar issues going on in the 1960s in the United States that Ronald Reagan was reacting against. Even as left-wing as people say President Obama is, those of us who have read political history know that nothing, virtually nothing he has said on matters of economics and matters of state guidance comes close to what dropped from the lips of Democratic Party politicians with regularity in the period between 1960 and 1980. These victories made possible the free and prosperous globe that we all inhabit. What we worry about, what PJ worried about, what all of us are dealing with, is the threat to that that comes from a new source, the threat to that that comes from populist politics that seems to be enroiling most of the developed world, less so here, but I think your near-death experience, as I've heard it described, is a warning sign that it can happen here in the lucky country, that you're not simply here by luck, you're here by design, the design of a statesman, Robert Menzies, the design of a second statement, John Howard, who again, implemented classical liberal principles imperfectly, but in a politically uh, astute way that made possible the growth and the expansion of freedom in other ways. 
This populism is being driven by a group of people whom the center-right leaders in most of the developed world either ignore, attack, denigrate, or belittle. These are not the same people that Robert Menzies needed to organize. These people have generally been organized in the last 70 years. They tend not always to be the same sort of people that Ronald Reagan focused on, what we would say is the vast American middle class. They're disproportionately now people who 70 years ago would have been considered part of the Labor Party coalition. They are disproportionately people who are semi-skilled, who both culturally and politically and economically are feeling left behind in the changes that have ensued in the last 30 years. They feel unrepresented by their traditional organs, the socialist and labor parties, or in America we call statism liberalism, in the massive, wonderful way of that newspeak enters into our political uh, lexicon uh, in America. Uh, these parties are abandoning their natural his constituency. But in most places, they do not find a natural home on the right. And so consequently, you see them embrace the sort of extreme expressions of faith and uh, hope that populist politicians who have few scruples and even fewer workable ideas offer to people who perceive themselves to be desperate and, out, and, and, and un unloved by the people who they perceive to be running the society. Take a look at virtually any country in Europe. The, if, I were simply a market uh, analyst, and I were betting on what would be called a growth stock, populist parties that cater to anger about globalization, the EU, and some form of competition uh, against low-skill labor. Immigration is, should be thought of as a competition issue, not a cultural issue, because immigrants, whether they come by their own volition or whether they come by being invited because they claim refugee status, will eventually become Com competitors for lower skill jobs in the country of their new residents. These parties have been growing dramatically over the last 15 years. Uh, these parties have grown dramatically, as you probably know, in many countries simply over the last two years because of the refugee crisis in Europe. And in many places, they will win the next election. Uh, the Dutch election next year will almost certainly be won. Of course, the Dutch have a hyper-proportional representation system, so winning means getting a quarter of the vote. But it's almost certainly the person who expects to become prime minister is the leader of their populist party, Gert Wilders, who is known for an extreme form of anti-immigration uh, and anti-Islam rhetoric. Uh, the winner of the Austrian presidential election, which is being rerun in October, according to the polls, is likely to be the uh, candidate of the populist right party, uh, which goes by the name of the Freedom Party of Austria, the Freiheitliche Partei Österreich, uh, which is the uh, party that favors uh, strict limits on immigration and uh, st uh, pr will probably, if they win, uh, institute their own form of Brexit. Uh, the next winner of the election in Italy is, uh, if the polls are to believe, going to be a protest party with no discernible ideology led by a former comedian named Beppe Grillo. The election in Iceland, and, you know, nice little stable Iceland. Well, they go through a massive financial crisis. They're going to have an election on October 29th this year. The leading party in the polls is the Pirate Party. The Pirate Party, okay? This, these various forms of populism, most of which are on the right, are the growth stock in the world. And what did we see in America, my beloved country? What we saw was a man who basically in Australian terms can be cast as a mix between Clive Palmer's personality and background and Pauline Hanson's ideology. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
shrewdly mobilized the forgotten people. When he started his race, he was broadly, un when he started the race uh, in June of 2015, he was broadly unpopular, uh, even among Republicans. But over the next few months, he focused like a laser on the concerns that have been animating this segment of the population, which in different countries is between one-sixth and one-third of a nation's population, as expressed in, in polls and demographics, and said, in effect, you're right that the elites don't care about you. You're right that you've been left behind. You're right that the culture that you believe is being denigrated. You're right that they are rigging the rules in a way that will enrich them at your expense. You're right that they care more about foreigners than they care about yourself. Being an American means more than simply living here, and it means more than simply paying taxes. It means that you have expectations that people who are in power should pay attention to. I hear you. I've got your back. Immigration, the Islam ban, international trade restrictions, these are all specifics that weave together into this cultural appeal that is nothing more than a scream for help from today's forgotten people. Now, in the Republican Party system, you can win a nomination with less than a majority support. And in fact, that is what Donald Trump did. He ran through a 16-person field and used the ways in which Republican rules give majority status to plurality winners and was able to win uh, the major party nomination with uh, the support of less than half of the voters. In fact, in the most competitive times of the race, he frequently got fewer than 40 percent. But because a 40% victory would give you 100 or 66% of the delegates, he acquired the power to uh, become the nominee. Since that time, he has done little to expand his appeal beyond his core base. There are many people who reluctantly support him today because he is the party nominee and partisan politics being what it is. You root for the shirt. When you put on the shirt, suddenly the person who is a free agent who came over to your team becomes your best player. Uh, that's not enough, though, to win in American politics. Uh, while the American uh, political scene, you look at facially and say, well, the Republican Party is a majority party. It elects presidents. It elects congressional majorities. In fact, if you ask people and have asked people for 84 years since Franklin Roosevelt won the presidency in 1932, more people will answer over a 12-month period. One poll might be different, but over a 12-month period, consistently, the Democratic Party has more people who say they believe and consider themselves part of it than the Republican Party. Republicans can win what I call negative victories when people are upset with the Democrats, but they have never, for one calendar year, even during the height of Reagan and the height of Bush, managed to have a plurality, much less a majority, support among party identification among the broader American electorate. That means what Donald Trump did was use a small faction to take over a smaller party and parlay that into international prominence. But if Donald Trump were in a singular phenomena, he would be important to talk about because it's obviously my country has, through, you know, through, through circumstance, become one of great import to uh, other nations in the world. But Take a look at, as I mentioned, what's going on in the rest of the world. The Brexit vote is, again, an excellent example of a center-right leadership that forgot the forgotten people. For 10 years, David Cameron's administration tried to modernize the British Conservative Party. 
his definition of modernizing the British Conservative Party was effectively trying to increase their vote among highly educated people who were splitting off to vote for the Liberal Democrats or to vote for Blair's Labor Party and restore the start of class-based politics that had ruled before Tony Blair broke it in 1997. Consequently, what you see is that from the time he took over power to the time that he stepped down, the, the conservative party rose barely not at all in public polls. That when John Major was destroyed in 1997, they got 31%. When William Hague was destroyed in 2001, they got 32%. When Michael Howard was destroyed in 2005, they got 33%. In the depths of a great recession that bordered on a depression, David Cameron managed to get it up to 36%. And if you look underneath it, he didn't increase the vote among his targeted group. He got people of, who were voted for Tony Blair among lower income, lower socioeconomic status voters, went for him as a choice of last resort. By 2015, these voters had clearly seen that a man who would call them fruitcakes, racist, and nuts because they thought immigration might be a problem didn't care about people like them. And that created UKIP and that created the political demand for the European referendum. A number of people tell me, well, he should never have called the referendum. Well, actually, it was the only thing he could have done. He was going into the election period with a third of the vote. Uh, the UKIP was polling close to 20%, and he needed to convince these people that, yes, I may not be with you, but I'll give you a voice. Elect me, and you will get, we will decide your question. It got just enough people over combined with a scare campaign driven by the social, uh, opposition to the Scottish National Party that gave him a majority in Parliament on, wait for it, 36.6% of the vote. In every British election in the 20th century, that amount would not have won. He only won because of the massive fractionalization of British politics, which is simply reflecting what's going on in the rest of the world. The Brexit vote, again, exactly on those lines. Lord Ashcroft took a post-election poll. They don't have exit polls uh, in the same way that America does. So you have to go back and find out the demographic uh, factors influencing an election afterwards. He found exactly what you would expect, that the more well-educated you are, the more likely you are to embrace globalization, to think that the future is positive, the more likely you are to think that immigration is an opportunity and not a threat. In fact, the more likely you are to embrace remain. Every step of the socioeconomic status that Britain had, that they classify people into, increased the amount of the Leave vote. So that the Leave vote was fueled by the people that they call DEs, which is to say welfare dependents and unskilled laborers. They were the ones who provided the supermajority vote. And that even in today's prosperous Britain, there are as many or more of them as there are people who they call ABs, which is to say university and postgraduate people who are educated and doing quite well. Thank you very much. But it's not simply economics. Lord Ashcroft also dug underneath that, and he asked about a variety of cultural questions, said, do you think that X or Y is a good thing or a bad thing? You might expect that people who thought that uh, changes in uh, globalization were a bad thing would be highly in favor of leave, and you would be right. But did you know that people who thought that the internet was a bad thing was also in favor of leave? That people who thought that feminism had been a bad thing were strongly in favor of leave. Across a whole variety of seemingly unrelated cultural issues, you saw the same divide. These people who still think that the values of Britain of 1979 and 1980, the values of Margaret Thatcher, 
are no longer held in repute, that they feel the changes from that have been bad for society as a whole, these people feel left behind. They feel forgotten, and they express themselves by tearing Britain out of the European Union. Look at your election. Again, you have a near-death experience. The places you tended to lose your uh, seats, you being, of course, the coalition. I shouldn't say the coalition because it was all the Liberal Party. The Nats didn't lose a single seat and, in fact, gained this rural seat of Murray from the Liberal Party, occurred in places with below uh, average numbers of college-educated workers. Uh, thanks to Nick Cater and the Menzies Research Center, I've looked at all of your House divisions, and the ones you lost are ones, the ones that the Liberal Party lost tend to be the ones where fewer than 20 percent, and in most cases fewer than 15 percent of all Australian adults have a four-year degree. Now that might seem incomprehensible. Uh, isn't the world we live in, the world of increasing education and increasing affluence and increasing openness, and certainly the trends are in that direction. But as you would say, it's a high growth rate from a very low base. Even today, only 57 of your 150 House seats have 20% or more of the adults with a four-year degree. 20%. 93 of them have fewer than 20%. In America, the median voter is somebody who is a college dropout. In Britain, the median voter is a semi-skilled technician who only graduated from secondary school. I don't know Australian what it is, but I can tell you that in Australian politics, your median house division has fewer than one in six people who have graduated from university. Robert Menzies understood this. Robert Menzies built a coalition to mobilize the people of his time to stop the threat of his time. In 1996, you had a second act of statesmanship in the coalition. John Winston Howard saw, the, saw off the challenge from Pauline Hanson, your first iteration of Pauline Hanson. Uh, when she got over 11% of the primary vote in the 1996 election. Did John Winston Howard act like David Cameron and say that Pauline Hanson and her backers are racist nuts and fruitcakes? No. He took away the legitimate issue by embracing the legitimate issue that they had, stripped it of its racism, and rebuilt the coalition alliance to recreate the alliance that Robert Menzies had for his time. A successful political operation always must be t in touch with principle and in touch with public opinion. Understanding that in many times you need to bring public opinion over the long term along with you, but make pr uh, prudent compromises in the short term to create the ability to have that soapbox that can bring them along with you. The coalition has a choice. It can have a real death experience in three years by engaging in the sort of ignorance that too many parties in the center-right and the my Republican Party leadership engaged in the United States, or can rediscover the wisdom of Robert Menzies, of Ronald Reagan, of John Howard. It can remember the forgotten people, and it can start to then rebuild the drive for a freer, more prosperous, more liberal society. Thank you.